um, for anyone who doesn't know me, I'm, I'm Sally. I'm originally from Christchurch. I grew up in Christchurch and have been part of the Auckland Zen Centre Sangha for, since about 2007 or 8. And a coming to the past talk is just simply a, a talk about how I came to be coming to the Zen Centre. So just, just what it says on the tin. Um, tonight I'll start with a, try and give a brief autobiography and then go a bit more, a little bit more detail about how I've explored religion and spirituality um, through my life so far. Um, when I was asked to do this talk a few months ago, I started, I pulled out an old stack of journals and diaries that I kept from partway through high school right through the 90s. And um, so going through some of the earlier ones was, was actually quite interesting because I hadn't looked at them for years. Um, and, that, and so that's helped, helped me put together some of the memories from a long time ago. Uh, and if, if time allows, hopefully I'll, at the end I'll talk about some of the challenges that I faced and still face on this path and maybe a little bit of some of the Dharma teachings that I found inspiring. Um, so I, yeah, I grew up in a, quite a middle class family. My dad worked as a teacher and then trained students to be teachers at Teachers College using drama and education and that kind of thing. And mum trained to be a teacher but then became a full-time mother and had five of us. And I was the middle one. Dad decided, later on, Dad decided to retire from teacher's college early at age 55, I think it was, and painted, started painting full-time and had lots of exhibitions and he still paints at age 83. So he's still going, going strong and there's a house full of paintings down in Christchurch at mum and dad. And he, he still has exhibitions. Dad grew up in Dunedin as the only surviving son of a war widow and my grandmother, Mavis Makara, lost her, both her second son as a baby and her husband in the same year, 1941. So um, that, was, that was the environment my dad grew up in. And my mum grew up in the North Island as the youngest, of a child, uh, youngest child of three and her dad was a headmaster at New Plymouth Boys High, I think it was. Um, and she moved to Dunedin to, go to Dunedin to go to university and that's how she met Dad. And they moved, when they married, they moved to Christchurch, um, where neither of them had relatives. So we, we grew up quite isolated from the few blood relations we might have had around the place. But, um, yeah, as I say, they made up for that by having five of us. Um, when mum was expecting her fifth baby, I was about five. And I, I have a memory of her slumped in a chair, all tired and unhappy. And I, I, I imagine she was a bit, feeling a bit isolated with her mum way up in New Plymouth and not that much people around to support, but she was just going, oh, I'm pregnant again. And we were probably, the rest of us kids were probably being, making a hell of a noise and she was probably really tired. Anyway, this moment, seeing my mother like that, really stuck in my mind at that young age. And I, when I look back, I can see pervading my life was this feeling that I was a burden on my mother. And it even makes psychological sense to me looking back that I became, at a young age, very concerned about the environment and the planet and the future of humankind and, and other such things, as if we were like a burden on Mother Earth, so which we kind of are. Um, so that, that was, I guess I started out with, even though I was a reasonably well, you know, all right family, I just managed to start out with a quite an unhappy view of the world quite young. Um, we grew up surrounded by books 
and mum and dad used to read to us every night at bedtime. We drew and painted lots too. Um, we always had a big roll of newsprint paper and an easel with pots of powder paints in, in, the, in the garage. And the interests I had throughout my childhood and through my teens tended to be really solitary and inward oriented, like reading, painting, drawing, art, writing and thinking. And my parents chose not to have a TV while we were growing up. Most of my peers at school, of course, wanted to talk about what they'd seen on TV last night, and I didn't really connect with what they were saying, and lacking in conversational and other social skills, if someone asked me, did you see such and such on TV last night? I might reply, oh, we don't have television, in a slightly superior way. Um, despite being um, unconventional, and from a very unconventional family, somehow I managed to avoid being the subject of bullying, possibly because I was seen as really good at drawing, and perhaps that explained why I was a bit strange. Um, I had one long-lasting friend through school, a girl near my age, and she lived just nearby, and she spent so much time at our house that she became a de facto sister, but we, we didn't hang out at school because she was good at socialising and I wasn't, so I would be too much hard work for her. Um, at, at home we had really lively conversations around the dinner table when we expressed our opinions fairly freely and um, chatted lots, talked lots. So it wasn't entirely introverted, it was just in, in, depended on the setting. I think I believed I had to speak my mind exactly as the thoughts came, thinking that any kind of politeness was insincere and somehow believing that people wouldn't be affected by my manner if I said something that offended them. I didn't, didn't really have a concept that I could offend them somehow. Um, during my first year at secondary school, we moved to the UK so my father could take a year-long course at a university there. I was pretty miserable at that age, around 13 years, and really got immersed, when I wasn't at school, immersed in an imaginary world, which I invented a language and I made up a script for the language and I drew pictures and maps and wrote whole... Like, books or stories about it and I, I just really preferred this world to the one I lived in. It was, it was my escape and I think my parents were a bit concerned for a while <laughs> how much of an escape it was but really I think it was quite a sane response to, to, to what I felt like about the world around me just to completely have, have a, a break from it. Um, the remainder of high school I was back in Christchurch and I learnt Te Reo Māori at a time when it wasn't offered at at my school, it was only French and German that was offered, but I was just determined and went to summer school and night classes. After high school, I went to Christchurch Polytech and did graphic design, illustration, photography and printmaking. And later, um, I travelled overseas, and I'll come back to that, and ended up in Auckland where I studied social anthropology. And ever since that time, I've worked in the disability sector, mostly in an office job, reworking print print school books like maths books and so on into large print formats. So that's a brief chronology. Uh, so the, the first, I've, I've, when I was writing this I organised a few sections and the first section is the problem of suffering. And I've been looking back and reflecting about my interests in language and learning about other worlds than the one I was most familiar with and other ways of being in the world I also seemed to be deeply troubled by the suffering in the world as I learnt about it. And not having TV, most of what I learnt was through books. And one example was a book we had at home of Time Life Photographers 
photographed three powerful images, mostly black and white, and they've been taken over probably quite a few years, mostly news photographers and sort of life photographers. One of the photos, I mean, sometimes they were photographed from the Great Depression, sometimes there were people queuing up and, you know, queuing for, for bread or something, poverty, war, all those kind of, some quite bleak but very powerful images. One of the photos showed a group of white people standing shoulder to shoulder in a field holding wooden clubs. And just in front of them was a fox and it could not escape from this group of people with the clubs. And they were clubbing it to death and laughing. The jeering smiles on their faces made me feel totally sick. It was Not only did they gang up on this poor creature to kill it, but they seemed to be enjoying it. I don't know exactly what I said about it, but other than I remember asking, how would they do that? Why would they enjoy doing that? And when I was about 12, another story of suffering, <laughs> my grandmother gave me a book about the Incas. And this, I really enjoyed reading about these incredible people and had their beautiful way of life, what it seemed like to me at the time, and uh, quite complex road system they had around the country and a welfare system where they stored grains for, for, for times of famine and looked after people, apparently. I mean, they had their problems too. But in the end of the book, it talked about what the Spaniards did when they came, the conquistadores, and how they completely wiped them out and, and agreed for gold and their exploitation and so on. That was the beginning of the colonization of uh, South America. Anyway, reading about that just totally broke my heart again. So that was another thing that I was just read. what are people doing here? And then, um, throughout the 1980s, I was, there was a time when there was the Cold War and there was people, stuff in the news about potential for nuclear war and annihilation. I remember seeing something on TV in 1983, and my, there's a diary entry I wrote about it. I, I wrote about how I was terrified of the kind of slow and painful death I might experience. I wrote, it's so wrong. I want to live a normal life. I want to live to old age and in good health. And I had recurring nightmares about a nuclear holocaust. I was upset to the point of depression at times by the problems in the world. And increasingly, increasingly over the years, that focus has been more on the climate emergency which is facing our planet. And, and plenty of other things <laughs> when you listen to the news at the moment, which is facing humanity. But at the same time, I was often bogged down with my own personal anxieties and worries about my life and feeling really like other people seemed to know how to behave and I didn't somehow, like they had some they had some code book that I didn't have access to or something, didn't know how to interact with other people very well and I felt quite a bit of, in my diaries I, I wrote, I poured out all my anger and frustrations with life and thought that writing them out might help me understand what was going on but one of the things, looking back, that I wrote about was I speculated that I needed meditation to get rid of difficult emotions. And looking back at that idea now, the idea that meditation would help get rid of difficult feelings, get rid of difficult feelings, was really a massive misunderstanding about what meditation is. And I also, I tended to feel like I didn't really belong at all in, in, in thinking of Christchurch in the 1980s. Um, and I got a bit frustrated with how people tended to regard Europe, the UK, the USA as the most meaningful, worthwhile places to visit and emulate. And that was one of the reasons I was interested in Te Reo. It seemed really important to me to learn the language of this land, Te Reo Māori, 
and I felt like everything we were offered at school was far too centred around Europe and North America. And I was also interested in, in learning languages, especially a non-European language, because I had heard that lang learning languages that aren't structured like our own language it kind of changes your, your brain structure a bit and, and gives you a different angle, a different way of being cause, because the language structures the way you think and see the world. And so I thought learning a non-European language, like Māori, which is right here in New Zealand, would, would help uncover something about the mind. I was, I was interested in, to see if it would help me see the world in a different way. So yeah, the, the problems that I was going through back then, it kind of makes sense now looking back at, at why Buddhist teachings resonated for me. But I'll, I'll talk a bit about travels and things in a bit, but um, just first of all I'll say something about the background of, in, in terms of my interest in religion, spirituality and stuff. And I've called this little section, I don't know what I want. Um, Mum's never been strongly religious, but she goes to a Presbyterian church in, in her area. And she really likes the sense of community, the gatherings, cups of tea. She's a real people person. She really likes the, the, the sense of community, the people who are the elders and so on, and meeting young, new young people that come in. And, and she, she encouraged us, or even made us for a while, attend Sunday school and Bible class. And she thought it would be valuable at least for us to learn about the Bible stories. And which I did, but listening to the words of the hymns and the songs that, that we were singing at church and stories in the Bible, I tended to really think about them a hell of a lot and worry about them because it just didn't make sense. I just got really frustrated. My mum said she didn't really worry about the literal meaning. She just enjoyed the people and, and the, the general feel and spirit of it, which is something I have felt as I'm older. I can sort of sense that more, but at the time I was just worrying too much about the meaning and the words. At primary school, we had a scripture teacher for a few years called Miss Cross, and she espoused a literalist interpretation of Christian teachings. And she would bring out her nylon string guitar and have us sing songs that were quite simplistic, like the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I'll read and pray and then obey the B-I-B-L-E. <laughs> Such simplistic songs and teaching had the reverse effect on me and pretty much put me off. And... I do have a memory throughout my childhood of feeling like something was kind of lacking and I didn't know what it was. And I'd been looking at books about other cultures and thinking maybe they had it or maybe this has it or that has it. I remember one night Mum put us to bed and went to sit in the living room. She was probably really tired. I got up and I said, Mum, I don't know what I want. And that was a feeling that kept coming up. When I was young, it's just like, I really don't know what it is that I want, but something. <laughs> I don't know what it is. So, anyway, um, my dad's mother had been involved in quite a literary and arty scene in Dunedin, and her friend, Cecily, was a, an old friend of the family after my, even after my grandmother died, and she talked to my sister Lynn and me about her beliefs in theosophy, which was my first exposure to any kind of other religious option, and, and of course, theosophy people who believe, follow that were believing in reincarnation and all sorts of resonances in between people and it's kind of like a precursor to some of the new age beliefs nowadays. Uh, even while I was still at high school, 
I must have known something about meditation. I, I don't know what it was, but when I looked in my diary from the fifth form, when I was about 15, I wrote about an experience after doing my school certificate English exam in 1982. After three hours of intense focus and concentration, and the sound of all these maybe 100 students rustling exam papers, just this, this general, quiet, quiet, peaceful, focused room in a large hall, I remember at the end of that fe feeling like this kind of really focused elation. That was pretty strange for an exam, but that, I just in my diary, I speculated that this feeling of that focus was like meditation. And I don't know. I don't know what I, made me think about that because I don't know what I knew about meditation at that time. Um, about three years later, about 17 or 18, I did a. I went to a night class in some kind of meditation. It was some kind of Hindu-derived thing. They called it Raja Yoga. But I was a bit put off by the people in the group. We had to stare at this poster, which was, had this strange sort of egg shape on it. And we sometimes had to stare at the, the teacher's third eye. And um, The people seemed quite blissed out. Um, we went to a potluck dinner, and people were all very smiley and happy. And I wrote in my diary afterwards, <laughs> if these people have a happiness, then I don't want to be like them, innerly happy. <laughs> Because <laughs> I just obviously wasn't their kind of meditation wasn't for me, um, and I I was studying art and design at Christchurch Polytech, and at that time I was really fascinated with dreams and hallucinogens as ways into creativity. I mean, reading about Carlos Castaneda, who wrote all sorts about some hallucinatory experiences he had with a Native American teacher of some sort. I didn't end up doing any hallucination hallucinogens. But I did have friends at Polytech uh, that I that we smoked dope with. But after a while, I kind of got a bit bored of that. It seemed like it was just entertainment, and it didn't seem to have any spiritual value. It was just something people did and for a laugh, really, and to be a bit rebellious in my in, in my particular circle of friends. Um, and at that time, I was also keeping a dream diary. I used to write down. Some of my, because I paid lots of attention to them, I remembered them better. Some of them got quite surreal, but again, I was looking for some kind of ideas and creative insights. At that time, I was still drawing a lot and painting as well. Uh, in my teens and into my 20s, I was exploring all that kind of thing further. I, I ended up going to some New Age festival which had a whole lot of different workshops on offer over a 10-day period. And while some of those workshops, like rebirthing or whatever, might have been valuable to explore in themselves, because there were lots of different taster workshops here and there of this and that thing, it was all really quite disorienting, quite a mishmash, really. And later that same year, 1988, I went to my first Vipassana retreat, which, for anyone who doesn't know, is like a 10-day uh, retreat in Fallen Silence, and they have a pre-recorded teachings they follow all the way through. And... And this particular one was in, in, a, in North Canterbury, but normally there's a place up at Kalkapakapa, north of Auckland, where you can do them. And I found it very interesting that I could learn to observe emotions as they arose and grew and subsided. And someone had a cold, and I, I remember noticing how every time they sniffed, I got this splash of irritation. <laughs> and it was like the heat coming right up. And so I had this meditation blanket around me and, and it was in a cold room in the middle of winter and I remember that it got so hot from the, that little tiny flash of irritation every time that I, that I would warm right up. So 
actually kind of useful when you're quite cold. But um, it, it was interesting to learn about how to experience and watch emotions coming up. So that was that was probably my first experience of having that little moment of looking back at it rather than just being overwhelmed by it. I also remember feeling quite exhilarated towards the end or after the retreat. And But after the retreat itself, there wasn't really any ongoing group in Christchurch apart from a small meeting at some time. And, and they were recommending one hour in the morning of meditation, one hour at night. And I just all got a bit much, so I, I kind of dropped it after a while. And so I didn't do any further meditation other than as part of yoga classes until 1996 when I took an introductory meditation class at Auckland Buddhist Centre in Great Um. But I won't get to that just yet. I want to I'm talk a bit about travels and the bereavement that I had at that point, which kind of got me back to meditation. So the next section I've called Restlessness and Impermanence. Um, from reading travel books, and hearing about the travels of friends, I'd gotten the idea that visiting other countries, not so much as a tourist, but as a backpacker travelling independently and really having to be in among people, not, not at a distance, that I might open my mind. As per that saying, travel broadens the mind, I thought that might really help me understand other worlds. My first independent overseas travel by myself was to Indonesia, where I was in Sumatra and Java, and I visited Borobudur, a multi-level Temple Stupa, which was in central Java, and it's made from black volcanic rock. You have to look it up if you don't know about it. It's quite a fascinating structure. It was built a long time ago. But it's got these different levels that create a pilgrimage walk. Along the lower levels is these bar-relief carvings showing the Buddha's... Oh, no, sorry, showing unenlightened existence, all sorts of everyday life sort of scenes of the time. And then further up, it shows stories from the Buddha's life, and then further on, stages of awakening and at the very top it represents Buddhahood. So it's all very symbolic and it was interesting that I went to that place and never never knew at that point um, how Buddhism would have quite an effect on my life later on. But I do remember being seeing the Buddha statues at the top, these meditating figures, and at the very top there's these perforated stupas that you can see into and you can see a Buddha figure inside each one. And at the very top there's just a large perforated stupa that you can look right through and there's not nothing in there. Uh, yeah, in the 90s, I also learnt to scuba dive and went to Vanuatu for six weeks, working as an unpaid assistant for a scuba diving company and returned for lots of scuba diving. What fascinated me about the underwater realm, it was so different from the world on the land. Yet again, that theme of wanting to experience other worlds. I loved that feeling of neutral buoyancy, kind of floating, fly, almost flying through the water, and experiencing this completely other world in which the fish the fish and all the underwater beings it's in it's in their world you're visiting. But I did have a near miss where I nearly ran out of air because of a bit of careless carelessness a careless decision beforehand before the dive. And that really brought home how dependent you are on the technology when you're scuba diving and the breathing and you're breathing underwater and you're thirty meters down and, and you're breathing through this bit of machinery and you're so dependent on that machinery. And even while we're alive on land, we're on land, surrounded by air, it's that breathing, that same breathing, it's what's keeping us alive from one breath to the next. And for three years, I was in a relationship with a guy called Steve, and, and he, we did lots of tramping and mountaineering together. 
but I wasn't really settled. I couldn't get rid of my idea that I had to go to Mexico and Peru and South America. The reason being that the, the book by my grand, from my grand, my grandmother had given me had really planted the seed about having to go to Latin America, having to go to see where the Incas lived and the Aztecs and so on. Um, so in 1994, I headed to Mexico and Guatemala and spent three months tramping in the Andes and Peru and Bolivia. By December, I was in Chile, and that was when I received the news via the New Zealand Embassy in Santiago to call home. When I managed to get through to my sister, I learned that Steve had been mountain climbing in the South Island and that a slab avalanche had carried him away. Search parties hadn't been able to locate him. There's a lot more I could say about getting home back home on Christmas Eve, being part of a search party that located his body on the mountain later on in, in January, and painful interactions with his family. But what's more significant for this talk is how the loss gave me a massive kick, a massive shock for which I was totally unprepared. Any sudden bereavement can turn one's life upside down. I remember looking through the Bible to see if I could find anything about bereavement and death. The story about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead did not help. No miracles were being worked in my situation. I decided to make a fresh start in my life by moving to Auckland to study cultural anthropology. My interest in other cultures had meant that studying anthropology was something I'd always wanted to do, but it wasn't offered in, at the university in Christchurch, so I hadn't at that point been able to do it, but this was time to make a completely fresh start. And during my first year here in Auckland, after Steve's death, I really threw myself into my studies, but had a few difficulties the rest of the time. I was struggling with a lot of rage, deep rage, self-pity, bitterness, and a sense of outrage that our society hides the reality of death from us. Later that year, I came across a copy of the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying by Sogyal Rinpoche, who was at that time a respected Tibetan Buddhist teacher. He's since been um, recognised, people have recognised that he did some quite abusive things to up his power, but at that point it was a very helpful book for me. It talked about dying and death in a very down-to-earth way and emphasised the value of Buddhist practice. It also mentioned the importance of working with a teacher so, in my second year in Auckland, I went to the Auckland Buddhist Centre. A few, few things pointed to me towards that, like a, a flatmate who'd been was going there and another friend who'd been. Uh, Auckland Buddhist Centre is part of an international network. That, that was in Greyland. Um, it's part of an international network which was originated in England. It's called the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order. It was called that before. It's got a new name now, Tree Ratna Buddhist Community. I attended their introductory meditation course, which went over several weeks, and I learned about mindfulness of breathing and the metta bhavana, or the loving-kindness meditation. And a second course went into more depth, as well as introducing basic teachings such as the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and Buddhist ethics, the precepts. I was really impressed at what the Buddha Dharma offers to help us cultivate both wisdom and compassion. The Buddhist practice of metta bhavana really impressed me because it, when I've been to church, I'd heard Christian teachings on how we should love one another, love thy neighbour. But I was—I remember as a child thinking, well, how, how do I love anyone? I might not just feel love all the time. How do I know? And how can I love people I don't know? And the metta bhavana, or lo cultivation of loving kindness practice, 
actually has some stages through which you you start with one with with yourself or with something else or something that inspires loving kindness in you, and then you gradually take it through different stages, including working with people you might feel very indifferent to, imagining someone you feel would normally feel indifferent to and wishing them well, and someone you even have difficulties with and wishing them well, and extending that gradually to all beings. So this is actually like a method to teach. This is how this is how you can work with with that. So I found that really inspiring. Another thing about Buddhist teachings was it gave me help for making sense of my bereavement and some stories in particular. One one story in particular that I found really powerful was that of Kisa Gotami. In case anyone here doesn't know the story, during the Buddha's time, Kisa Gotami um, was married and bore a son. And when her infant son died, her grief overwhelmed her. She couldn't accept it. And she carried around his little body not able to accept that he was dead and could not be revived. A village elder suggested she ask the Buddha for his help. The Buddha said to her, Bring me a mustard seed, but it must be taken from a house where no one residing in the house has ever lost a family member. Bring this seed back to me, and your son will come back to life. Of course, at each house where she made this request, she was told that someone in that house had died. So after visiting a few houses, she comes to realise that no one in this world has has not lost some loved one to death. She now understood death's an inevitable and natural part of life. And she took her son's body to the charnel ground and became a disciple of the Buddha. The teaching in this story about learning to live with the reality of death and impermanence seemed to me far more helpful than one about a miraculous healing. So, still find that story very powerful when I hear it. I started to envisage my life prior to Steve's death as being viewed through some kind of veil that meant I didn't see things clearly. The illusion of permanence, that death and bereavement are things that happen to other people, not to me. The shock of his death, as I now saw it, like ripped that veil away so that now for a while I saw things more sharply, more clearly. And yes, this is the reality. Life really does come to an end. I was also, having been in South America for quite a while before that, I was also struggling to readjust to life back in a well-to-do country after being in a country where countries where there was quite a lot of poverty and deprivation. And I, I felt, because of those two combined things, I really felt like I was living, that this, this country I was getting frustrated because I felt like people were complacent and um, lulled by this illusion of permanence. And I, I did keep going to ABC, for the Auckland Buddhist Centre, for a few more years, but I didn't really find a teacher. Meanwhile, in 1997, Adrian and I met when we were both at Auckland Uni, and we had some interest, quite a few interests in common, including environmental issues and cycling, cycling advocacy, riding our bikes. Um, in 1998 to 99, I was actually doing a Master's in Social Anthropology and ended up writing my Master's thesis about Sudarshana Loka, a retreat centre that the... Auckland Buddhist Centre for people, friends of the Western Buddhist Order, were establishing in the Coromandel. And I was exploring ideas about Western Buddhism, sacred place, and relationship to land. And relationship with the land was, was really interesting for me as a Pākehā in New Zealand, having had a bit of exposure to Te Ao Māori, the Māori world. And over the next five or so years, I was kind of moving away from the FWBO, which is another story, not, not, I can't really go to here, 
not time, um, and starting to look into other Buddhist groups. And I also continued with the academic strand. In, my, in 2001, I was working on a PhD in which I started working on it. And that was about another Western Buddhist group, this one in Australia, and I worked on that for quite a while, over about eight years. And meanwhile, in about 2003 or 2004, was it, um, we were, Adrian and I went to a movie at the Academy Cinema in Auckland and ran into a friend who introduced us to his old friends Charlotte and Richard, which Charlotte the sensei, and Richard, her husband, who were also at the movie. And we all, the group of us, went to dinner at a local vegetarian cafe. At that time, Sensei was a, a kind of um, unpaid voluntary Buddhist chaplain at AUT, which is in which he was offering sittings at AUT. And I was at Auckland University every day, so I started going along once a week to the AUT sittings. Soon, Adrian started coming along to the AUT sittings as well. And by 2007 or so, I think it was, uh, we started going to the Zen Centre regularly, which was then in Pa Road. And my first seven-day session was in winter 2009. And just for anyone new who hasn't been on a session in the ATC before, these are structured around over a seven-day period, lots of formal sitting, and mostly in, in silence. There's a few announcements. There's a Taisho or Dharma talk every day and the chanting services and Doksan, which is where you talk to sensei in private. And it was quite a contrast to other retreats I'd had experience of where we had much less structure and daily group discussions and just not not, not as much um not nearly as much silence. And so I found something really compelling about these sessions. The the deep silence that begins as soon as the evening first Evening supper is over on the first night, and the start and the end, we start with the tea ceremony on the first night. And I found session difficult with lots of pain in the knees and all sorts of painful inner resistance, doubt about why I'm there and so on. But in the end, I always will feel like I've really managed to get some more clarity, at least for a while. Yeah, looking back, I can see how. My thirst for understanding led my attempting led to me attempting to use the intellect a lot to try and understand the world. And of course, intellectual stuff will only help you understand intellectual things. It doesn't really help with kind of experiential inner things. But I certainly can see how I was using anthropology to try and understand something about what it is to be a human being. And the, the whole variety of that, not just our own familiar culture, but but other cultures and worldviews that w that are totally unfamiliar if, if we've never encountered them. Um, and it, but such a framework is is it's kind of useful in some ways. And all the writing you have to do, you get better at expressing things in written words and stuff. But none of that dispels the self-doubt or personal insecurities. And I certainly, while I was planning this talk, I felt plenty of self-doubt. Am I a complete fraud to sit here in front of you guys talking of coming to this path of practice? Especially when I've got so many inner struggles that I sometimes feel just as stuck as I ever did. And some of the things that I would struggle with, I mentioned that feeling of being a burden, uh, self-doubt, disillusionment with ordinary 
human existence and the consumer society we live in, all those things. Quite a bit of negative bias in how I look at things quite often. And um, something called misophonia, which is struggling with noises, having quite a strong reaction sometimes. So it's really hard to like hearing my neighbour's noise too much and not wanting to hear it and really struggling to work with that feeling like I can't relax while that noise is going on. So anyway, um, all of those things, struggling away. Um, Zen practice is sort of not a quick fix at all, but it's providing me with some kind of experiential rather than just intellectual way of being in the world. And my default mode is always to go back into the intellect and try and solve problems that way. So remembering to come back to what am I experiencing right now that's, and, and the explanations that Buddhism kind of gives and the methods on loving kindness and ethical guidance, all of these things have been really helpful over the years. And the way that Sensei teaches and various books that have come my way over the years, uh, all these things have helped me work with difficult emotions. One practice in particular that Adrian and I have both been exploring in the last couple of years, it's not, not a Buddhist practice, it's more psychology area, is ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. And I can't really summarise that here, but there's a book called The Happiness Trap, and there's a Dharma talk on the Rochester Zen Centre website that talks about that book and about ACT for Zen students. But one of the things I wanted to mention that ACT teaches, and it's a very Buddhist teaching, and it's also found in, in other, other, there are other methods that teach a, a similar approach to, to this, but it's just one way of approaching it, that when experiencing difficult emotions, such as a strong reaction, aversion, panic, rather than trying to push it away and get rid of it, to actually turn towards it and welcome it. Look at it, be with curiosity to explore it and try and say, well, what's actually going on? What, what am I feeling? What, what, is, what is this happening? What's this experience? And this would have always seemed counterintuitive to me all my life when I was trying to get rid of things that I didn't like. But when I really do engage in this way, if I can, I don't always feel like I can, um, there's a, but when I do engage with that way, that, that welcoming, that, that giving some space to what's going on and allowing it to just be... Like tonight when I sat down, I was feeling nervous about the fact I was going to talk, and I was feeling, rather than trying to push away that anxiety, to just say, oh, well, yeah, I'm feeling, feeling some anxiety. Let's just, let's just sit with it. So, yeah. One last thing I wanted to say was that earlier in this year, I read a book by a Tibetan teacher called Mingyur Rinpoche. And it, it's, the book is called In Love with the World, What a Buddhist Monk Can Teach You About Living from Nearly Dying. And Mingyur Rinpoche is a high-ranking monk in a branch of Tibetan Buddhism in charge of a monastery in India and with Dharma students around the world. He grew up in quite a sort of specialised Buddhist family. His father was also a renowned Buddhist teacher and his brother and all his life he's been trained since he was very young in teachings for awakening, mind training, for dealing with difficult emotions. But he was in his 30s and giving teachings all the time, looking after the monastery, looking after other monks. And he realised that 
as a tulku, a he was treated as a reincarnated lama. He had been pampered and indulged, and he had no practical skills, no real experience of the outside world. Any time they travelled anywhere, he was always really looked after and never had to buy his own ticket and never had to come into contact with people outside of his entourage. And he really really realised that he was, a, he, was, he was at a kind of stuck place in this practice where he, he was, and even as a teacher he was feeling attached to the status he was given. So he realised the only way out of this was actually to take, to go AWOL from the monastery. <laughs> he secretly left that monastery with only a small amount of money. He took a train on travelling third class for the first time in his life to Varanasi and then, then from there travelled to Kushinagar, another place where he, he kind of eased himself into this, this wandering life for four years where he was just wandering anonymously as a sort of like a wandering sage. But along the way, what, what most of the book is about the first three weeks when he first left the monastery because that was the most challenging for him, of course, when he first got out and had all these reactions to the world he was encountering. And, of course, mostly I've read, stuff I've read from Tibetan lamas in the past has been really high teachings, but this guy was writing about how difficult he felt, how horrible he felt cramped up in this smelly hot train carriage with too many people and, and no nowhere to sit and people treading on him and things and just this really strong aversion was coming up and he thought well, with all this training he's had for years, how come he's still feeling that that kind of training? But then he would get back into his mind training and he would work with it again. I found to to see that even with the depth of training he had, he still went into trouble to re with attachment and aversion. That's quite reassuring. It was really reassuring to me to read that. But also to read about how he used his mind training that he'd done all these years to help him then work with all these reactions as they came up. That is what I found really inspiring. I certainly found it really helpful to hear about the struggles that others have had if, if someone is with this deep grounding in the Bodhidharma, if Ningyur Rinpoche has had with difficult reactions, well then maybe I shouldn't give myself such a hard time for my own difficult reactions. So yeah, I'm still stumbling on this path, still struggling. Maybe stumbling and struggling are my path at this moment. But I'm truly grateful for what the teachings have to offer us all. I'm no longer looking for other worlds. The teachings show me that this world this moment is all that we have. I'll stop here and look at all bells. Oh, do we? Okay. Yeah. I must have been at high school. Um, I don't know. Um, I actually, I was wrecking my brains trying to think where it could have come from because I don't remember people talking about it. I must have heard from somewhere. Yeah. What was the name of the 
That book was called uh, In Love with the World, and the author's Mingyur Rinpoche. Yeah. I came across it in the library just by chance. I was just I don't normally get borrow down the books from the library. I normally just feel like it's, I'd much rather just listen to Sensei's Dharma talks, Taisho's, than, than go and read Dharma books because I feel like she brings them alive more, more than when she's quoting from them more than I can when I'm reading them myself. But this particular book, one day I just wandered into the library and looked at that section where I didn't normally go and this book just jumped out at me. <laughs> just, I had to read it. And then I've discovered since then quite a few other people in the, in the Tree Ratna Buddhist group who I go to, they, they were all discovered that book and they were all passing it around. So yeah, and then, then our neighbour got given it as well. She's a Buddhist and she got given it so it's just suddenly out there. We do the four vows then. <laughs> All beings without number, I vow to liberate The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service, or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz